Turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 16, beginning in verse 19. As we read the story, we're going to realize the immediate connection with what Jesus has just been teaching in Luke chapter 16. He used the parable of the unjust servant to remind us that we're to use our worldly possessions in such a manner that there will be people in eternity who will be there ready to greet us when we arrive. And then later in verse 15, Jesus said that there are things that people in this world are absolutely enamored with, but God abhors. And we see in this rich man in our story this morning that he failed to use his money wisely as Jesus had instructed, and he's the epitome of what the world admires but what God abhors. So let's stand for the reading of God's Word, Luke chapter 16, beginning in verse 19, as Jesus continues with his story. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame." But Abram said, Child, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said then, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abram said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Here is the reading of God's Word. Let's again look to Him. Father, as we sang prayerfully earlier, open the eyes of our hearts that we may behold wondrous truths from Your Word. And again, as we often pray, not simply truths that inform, but truths that transform, causing our hearts to grow and be enlarged with a love for Christ and for our neighbor. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. In 2011, a popular conference speaker and pastor Rob Bell wrote a book entitled Love Wins, subtitled A Book About Heaven, Hell, and the Fate of Every Person Who Ever Lived. In that book, Rob Bell asked the question, does a loving God really send people to hell for all eternity? Well, you don't have to read the whole book to get his answer. In his preface, he writes, quote, 
A staggering number of people have been taught that a select few Christians will spend forever in a peaceful, joyous place called heaven, while the rest of humanity spends forever in torment and punishment in hell with no chance for anything better. This misguided and toxic and ultimately subverts the contagious spread of Jesus' message of love, peace, forgiveness, and joy that our world desperately needs. And Bell will go on to argue in his book, Love Wins, that there'll be virtually no one in heaven, no one in hell, despite their behavior or their beliefs. Because after all, in the end, love wins. Bell, along with many people in our culture and churches today, believe just that. It doesn't matter your behavior or your beliefs. In the end, love wins wins. There will be no one in hell, only all in heaven. And yet Jesus strongly disagrees. Jesus spoke very often and very pointedly and no doubt with tears in his eyes and with a heavy heart of the reality of hell, of eternal punishment. And this is just yet another story of many places in which Jesus spoke of the realities of eternal punishment. But before we get to that part of the teaching, I, I want us to look at the story again and see what we can draw from the contrast between these two men, one who ended up in heaven and the other who ended up in hell. And what we see in this contrast between the rich man and the poor man Lazarus, by the way, not the same Lazarus who was raised from the dead in John chapter 11, very popular name. In fact, it was the third most popular name in Palestine at that time. But what do we learn from this contrast? It's this. Generosity is encouraged still among God's people. Jesus has been teaching that all along. And so he's painting this stark contrast between an unnamed rich man by the name of Lazarus, by, by, who's unnamed, and a man by the name of Lazarus who is impoverished. The rich man would have been the poster child of the lifestyle in the rich and famous. And Lazarus would have been the poster child of Samaritan's Purse. You couldn't get a more stark contrast. The rich man had every opportunity to help Lazarus, every opportunity to love his neighbor as himself, and yet he failed to do so. He squandered the lavish resources on himself. Can you imagine as Lazarus lay outside his gate, and by the way, the name for gate is a gate that would have been an entrance to somewhat of a palatial living space. He has to almost step over this man every time he goes to work, every time he goes to worship. And yet he never lifted a finger to help him, even though the law clearly demanded so. For example, in Deuteronomy 15, if among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. And yet this filthy rich man failed to be generous with his wealth and the resources that God had entrusted to him. 19th century pastor Robert Murray McShane, who had a tremendous 
heart for the poor who lived in his community around his church was once preaching and he challenged his congregation who were living in self-indulgent luxury with these words. I fear there are some Christians among you to whom Christ cannot say, Come, blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you. Your haughty dwelling rises in the midst of the thousands who scarce fire to warm themselves at and have but little clothing to keep out the biting frost. And yet you never darken their door. You heave a sigh, perhaps at a distance, but you do not visit them. Ah, my dear friends, I am concerned for the poor, but more for you. I know not what Christ will say to you on that great day. You seem to be a Christian, and yet you care not for his poor. Oh, what a change will pass upon you as you enter the gates of heaven. You will be saved, but that will be all. There will be no abundant entrance for you. He who sows sparingly shall reap sparingly. McShane saw the lavishness with which many of his members lived, and yet he saw right next door and in the streets, just stepping outside of the church, the impoverished, the poor, the hungry. You know, I am so thankful for the power of the gospel to change that tendency in our lives. I'm thankful, as I've observed over the years, many of members of our congregation who've given generously and sacrificially. I can literally think of the houses built for others, cars loaned and purchased for others, medical accounts paid for, surgeries paid for, medicine paid for, food provided by many of you in this congregation. What a privilege, in contrast to the world, to live in the community of the King, in which there is this mark of abundant giving and living in the midst of much poverty. But Jesus is not teaching this story just to encourage us to give more But he's also talking about generosity in another sense. Anytime Jesus dealt with music, he was beginning to mess not with just our pocketbooks and our bank accounts, but with our hearts. And what we see yet again in this story is that generosity, or lack thereof, is an indicator of one's true spiritual condition. Jesus' point is not that those who have money go to hell, And those who don't have money go to heaven. Nor is he teaching just a moralistic lesson on you must give in order to gain heaven. Jesus is doing with the subject of money what he often does. And that is remind us it's an indicator of the condition of our hearts and the genuineness of our faith. Remember what he said in the Sermon on the Mount. Where your treasure is there will what? Your heart be also. So he's dealing with the condition of our hearts and the genuineness of our faith. James, in dealing with the genuineness of faith, writes, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed, lacking in daily food, And one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is what? It is dead. 
It is not genuine saving faith. Or to put it the way Martin Luther said, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. There's always evidence in the life of the true believer. And one of those evidences of that saving grace is a generosity towards those in need. The rich man's love of luxury and the neglect of the needy clearly evidence where his heart was. It was far from God. Now the scary thing about this is he's a fine, outstanding citizen in Israel. And likelihood, he was a regular Sabbath worshiper. And so he would have assumed that he, among all people, was right with God. After all, wealth was a sign to them of God's blessing and God's approval. So can you imagine the most tragic reversal of what's about to take place? One of the great shocks here. We read it in verse 22 and 23 that this man who enjoyed wealth in this life all of a sudden became impoverished in hell. And the poor man Lazarus became rich. He was elevated from rags to riches in glory by the grace of Christ. As we look at this tragedy in the life of this wealthy man, I want us to briefly consider three tragedies within this tragedy. The first tragedy is the tragedy of hell itself. I mentioned earlier that Jesus often spoke of hell, in fact, more than any prophet or any other writer in Scripture. Jesus spoke of the realities of hell. Jesus spoke of the pain of hell. And the picture he paints here is ominous. The rich man cries to Abram, Send Lazarus just to dip his finger in water and, and touch my, my tongue for relief. And yet his cry falls on deaf ears. Such was his anguish of body and torment of tongue, and yet there's no relief. Jesus describes of hell as the hell of fire in Matthew chapter 5. He described it as a place of unending torment because the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched in Mark chapter 9. Jesus in Luke earlier spoke of the fire that's not quenched in that place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, and in particular to our story here of where you'll see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom, but you yourself will be cast out. And that door will be forever shut, Jesus says. The tragedy of hell is not seen just in the great reversal of this man's plight. This man was once on the inside of the palatial gate, but now he finds himself banished outside forever. And so what do we make of Rob Bell and his book, Love Wins? What do we make of our desire? Of just, wouldn't it be great if we could just wish hell away? Jesus will not allow us to do so. We might not be able to imagine a God who is so holy and ourselves is so lowly as deserving that punishment but Jesus could the tragedy of the reality of hell but there's a second tragedy it's a tragedy of being too late 
This rich man is beginning to experience the, the onslaught of this eternal punishment, and he cries out for relief. Just a drop of water on my tongue, please. And that plea falls on deaf ears. Why? We're told in verse 26, because there is an impassable chasm between heaven and hell, which no one can cross either way. But there's also another reason. Look again at verse 25. As he cries for this relief, but Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime you received good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. It's as if Abraham is saying, In your lifetime you had plenty of comfort, and you had plenty of time and opportunity to repent, and yet you refused. And tragically, it is now forever too late. It's almost like Ebenezer Scrooge being offered an opportunity to look back upon his life and to see how it was wasted and all his wealth was wasted on himself. But unlike Ebenezer Scrooge, there's no opportunity for this rich man to turn over a new leaf or to repent of his ways. One writer put it this way, after death, the time of grace is past. The fate has been sealed finally and forever. You can hear the door shut and clank locked. No wonder Paul, in pleading with those in Corinth who had not yet turned from their sin and embraced Christ, he, he pled with them. Behold, now is the time of grace. Now is the day of salvation. This sense of urgency to repent and turn to Christ can never be an overstatement for unbelievers. Why? For at least two reasons. One is you do not know when that day will take place. Oh, I'll put it off. I'll wait till I've, I've sowed my wild oats. I'll wait till I've, I've lived a while, and then I'll look to Christ. Well, tragically, you will not know when your days on earth will end and they come so quickly. But second, Jesus is reminding us something of the tragedy of unbelief and of unrepentance. You see, simply by delay, your heart will not become more soft. It will become more hardened to the gospel one of the Puritans, Thomas Watson, put it this way, by delay of repentance, sin strengthens and the heart hardens. The longer ice freezes, the harder it is to be broken. And such what it was with this rich man. And the day came and it was too late. The tragedy of being too late. The third tragedy is the tragedy of unbelief. Jesus gives us deep insight into the heart of unbelief in these verses. Realizing it's too late for himself, the rich man cries out again to Abraham and says, but I've, I've got a family back home. Please send Lazarus to, to go tell them of the realities of the torment of this place. And yet again, that request is refused. Why? There's an impassable gulf, but not only because of that. But Abraham says, even if Lazarus goes, your brothers still won't believe. Why? Well, look, they have 
Abraham and the prophets. They have Moses and the prophets. They have the scriptures. The scriptures are sufficient to remind us of our sin and need of a Savior. The scriptures are sufficient to remind us of the realities of heaven and of hell. They are sufficient, and yet they had the scriptures every Sabbath day, and they still didn't believe. It's almost a veiled excuse for this rich man. Lord, if you had just given me more, I would have repented. I would have believed. But Abraham responds and says, no, the the scriptures are sufficient. He, he disagrees with, with, with Abraham here. He says, no, send Lazarus and they will believe. And he says, look, if they didn't believe the scriptures, they will not believe even if someone rises again from the dead. Phil Riken puts it this way. If you do not believe what God has said in his word, then you will never believe anything else God does either. And you will never truly believe in Jesus. As Jesus helps us understand the heart of unbelief, unbelief does not need a miracle. It does not need more signs and wonders. How do we know? Because eventually someone did cross the gulf. Eventually, someone did rise again from the dead. The Lord Jesus Christ himself. And yet, there's still people who refuse to believe in the risen, glorified King of kings and Lord of lords. The tragedy of unbelief is that the unbeliever can have no one to blame but themselves. That ought to make us weep over the unbelief of our loved ones and pray to the Lord of the harvest to open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf and the minds of the dull and the hearts of the dead that in sovereign grace they might come to know him because otherwise on our own we would have never repented. We would have never believed the gospel even in the light of someone rising from the dead. But God in sovereign grace has brought us to faith in Christ. But feeling the weight of the rejection and refusal of Christ, Robert Murray McShane went on to address the unbelievers in his congregation. And by the way, a church this size, there are unbelievers here. Some who have a bobblehead faith and have nodded like this, but have not embraced Jesus by faith as he's offered in the gospel. McShane said this to unbelievers in the church. And I fear that there may be many hearing me who know well that they are not Christians because they do not love to give. To give largely and liberally, not grudgingly at all, requires a new heart. An old heart would rather part with its lifeblood than its money. Oh, my friends, enjoy your money. Make the most of it. Give none of it away. Enjoy it quickly, for I can tell you, you will be beggars throughout eternity. And such was the plight of this unnamed, filthy rich man in Jesus' story. You know, while the rich man may serve as a warning and a picture of a life wasted in self-indulgence, I believe Lazarus' life can also serve as a picture of great benefit to us as well. What do I mean by that? Ident identifying myself with Lazarus may be the 
key in understanding God's grace in this passage of Scripture. Grace that will lead towards more generous giving and living. You see, the generosity of God in the gospel of His Son is my only hope in this life and the next. The generosity of God in the gospel of His Son is the only thing that will really move and motivate us towards more generous giving and living. And so when I identify myself with Lazarus, I begin to understand something of the gospel of grace and the impact that it should have upon my life. Physically, Lazarus is not much to look at. He's hungry, he's homeless, he's dirty, he's diseased. They're mangy dogs licking the ooze from his sores. He's helpless. He's hopeless. He's a social outcast. He is ceremonially unclean. He cannot enter even to public worship. And yet Lazarus' physical condition is a picture of my spiritual condition and of your spiritual condition apart from the grace of God in Jesus Christ. You see, we were the outcasts. We were those who were alienated from and enemies of God himself, dressed in the filthy rags of our self-righteousness, covered with the filthy sores of our sin, impoverished souls, spiritually dead in trespasses, without God and without hope in this world. And yet maybe for years in our foolishness, we thought like this rich man, we were okay. Maybe like him and maybe like some of the members of the church in Laodicea in Revelation 3, our attitude was described as Jesus confronted that church for you say, I'm rich, I've prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are what? Wretched pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Spiritually speaking, if we do not look at lecherous Lazarus and say, that's me, then we have no more hope of entering glory than did this unnamed rich man in Jesus' story. This is who I am. This is who you are. Apart from the saving grace and cleansing blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Not in pocketbook, but in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So how do we enter glory? How did Lazarus enter glory? This miserable outcast. Perhaps his name is key. You see, Lazarus comes from the Hebrew name Eliezer, which means God who helps. You might think that's a cruel joke. Why would you name someone who is so impoverished and helpless? God helps. But think about it. Every time this poor man's name is mentioned, every time he hears it, he is reminded from whence My help comes. Could it be that in all those years, in begging even for crumbs from the rich man's table, 
Could it be that all those years of being neglected and being denied food and medical help and the dogs, filthy, mangy dogs licking his sores and crying out to people who passed by for help and never received it, could it be that during that lifelong time of suffering that he lifted his eyes to heaven and he beheld the God who helps? His faith and trust in man was nowhere to be seen. But could it be that there was a faith and a trust in the only one who could really ultimately provide the help that he needed? And he lifts his eyes in faith towards the God of heaven, towards the God who helps. And Lazarus then finally dies, and we find him at Abram's side. And this man who had been famished will feast forever in the gates of glory. But why is he at Abram's side? I thought Peter was at the door, right? Why is he ushered into Abram's side? Well, remember, I mentioned it earlier. God had entered into a covenant of grace with Abram. A covenant that says, if you believe, if you have faith and trust in me and my promises and my provision, then I will take your Filthy rags of self-righteousness and I will clothe you with the righteousness of Christ. That's why Abraham believed and it was credited. It was counted to him as righteousness. And Paul writes of Abram's faith, but the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but also for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised Jesus from the dead, who was delivered over for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So tell me, how was Lazarus justified and made right before God? The same way Abraham was, by faith in the finished work of Christ. At the death of these two men, there's a great reversal that took place. The unbelieving rich man became a beggar, and the believing beggar became a rich man throughout all eternity. The once rejected Lazarus is warmly welcomed by faith into the gates of heaven. His rags are replaced with the royal raiment of Jesus' righteousness. The filth of his sinful sores has been washed clean and there's healing through the blood of Christ and he would no longer hunger or thirst but rather feast forever. And my friends, Christ promises for all who count themselves helpless like Lazarus. He promises this for all of us who look in faith to the God who helps and the God who saves. So where does this story leave us? How does it fit together with what Jesus has been teaching? John Piper, I think, summarizes it well. As long as Jesus Christ embodies a radical freedom from a love of things and a deep delight in the service of others, then those who get their joy in life from luxury rather than the love of Christ will not be able to receive Jesus for who he really is. But my, my friends, when the gospel of grace takes hold of our hearts and continues to transform our hearts, we will recognize that we are spiritually the Lazarus in deep need of God's help. 
And having received that help and that salvation from Christ, we'll be transformed into those who love Christ more than our stuff and love people more than ourselves because we've tasted of the generosity of the God who helps and the God who saves. Let's pray together. Jesus, I pray this week that you would help me increasingly see myself in the shoes of Lazarus, struggling with sin, impoverished of spirit, starving sin-sick soul apart from the grace and mercy and benevolence and generosity poured out through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Oh God, would you work in each of us that sense of deep gratitude, of recognition that we are at best debtors to your mercy alone, and that when we cried out to you, it was not that it fell upon deaf ears, but upon a God who is ready to hear and a God who is ready to help and a God who is ready to save. We thank you for that salvation. And Father, I do pray as there may be those among us this day who are in the shoes presently of this unnamed rich man. Lord Jesus, I pray through the ministry of your word and spirit that they would see the reality of where they stand before you and before it is too late grant them grace even now in this moment to cry out to you for mercy forgiveness and grace through Jesus Christ work that in among them I pray even now Lord help us as we sing again to believe the gospel and respond with an increased love for you And the love for others, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.